you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. He had been invited round to dinner. It was a dinner party organized, planned months in advance, and it was going reasonably well. There was a bit of rudeness at the door when the guest of honor arrived, but things were okay. But then she came, and she had a reputation, a reputation that wasn't good, a reputation that would cause more than a few raised eyebrows. And as she walked into the room, the tension ratcheted right up. What would she do? Why is she here? Who is this unlikely person who is beyond the grace of God to come here? And she walked into the room. She held her nerve. And she walked up to the center of focus in the room, the center of attention, who wasn't the house owner. No, no, he didn't have the charisma for that, bless him. And the room went silent. This city got down because in the Middle East, they didn't sit at tables like we do. They sit with their legs out the back and she starts to cry. And as she cries, the tears fall richly from her eyes, so much so that she could actually wash the feet of Jesus with her hair. And this scene caused great scandal in the Pharisee's house. And Simon eventually doesn't say anything, but Jesus has to say to him, say something to me. What's your problem here, Simon? And Simon, outraged, says to Jesus, go on, tell me a parable to explain this. And in Luke chapter 7, we see how Jesus tells the parable of great mercy given about a money lender who had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii, a whole year's worth of salary, and one who owed 50 pence. Both were forgiven, says Jesus, but which one loves them more? And Simon said, the one who has canceled the larger debt. There is a deepness and a richness in God's mercy that is open to everyone. There is a deepness and a richness in the grace of God that is available to all who call upon it. There is a transforming power in the mercy of God. But that transforming power can't just stay as head knowledge. It can't just stay a certain amount of facts. It must be experienced within, received by faith. And when we receive it by faith, it has a transforming effect that flows out of us. We are given mercy freely, richly at Christ's expense for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And when we receive that mercy, that mercy, if it be true, that mercy, if it flows from the Lord's throne, will hit us in the heart, changing our heart, but also should flow out of us into the hearts of others by God's strength and power. And I share that story from the New Testament to illustrate the story from the Old to show that this is a perennial problem for the people of God. Jonah, as we have seen over the past two weeks, Jonah, this, this book actually isn't about Nineveh. It is, Nineveh benefits from it. But this book is primarily about God's people not doing what God has called them to do. Jonah is told, as we saw in chapter 1, to rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach out against it for their evil. Jonah rises up and goes straight to the bottom of the sea. And we see how God's mercy relentlessly pursues him. Isn't that a beautiful thing about Jonah? I mean, if you, if you, if you were an employee, and you had an employer, you're, you're, sorry, if you're an employer and you had an employee, and you said to them, you know, go and do this thing for me, and they said, no way, Jose, I'm away off the other direction. You're not going to keep them in the books very long, are you? God pursues Jonah. 
And in the midst of Jonah running away from God, jumping in this boat, God pursues him with providential power. He causes a great sea storm to throw up the ocean. God will not let him go. And in the midst of the sea storm, in the midst of the prophet who refuses to preach of God's goodness, God's goodness shines out and the sailors get saved. Even though they try to run from God. I love the imagery there of that. When they're on the storm, God's justice bearing down on them, God's mercy bearing down on them. They're trying to throw everything in the face of it to get away from him. We do that too, don't we? If God is pursuing us, we throw things in his face. Delight in the load. Delight in the burdens of conscience. Delight in the tugging feeling in our heart to try and quiet it down. We throw good works in his face. So I'll do this, but I'll get God off my back. I'll throw some money in the collection box. That'll get God off my back. I'll, I'll do this deed, but surely he'll leave me alone. But no, no, God's mercy is deeper and more transformative than that. He doesn't just let us away with that. Love so amazing, so divine. What does it demand? My heart, my soul, my all. And so God pursues Jonah with his rich mercy. He pursues the sailors. The sailors cry out and receive his justice. Jonah still refuses to see God's mercy. He gets chucked into the sea. And as we said last week, if there's ever a time to pray, maybe it's them and somebody's throwing you into the sea. Jonah doesn't. I mean, he is a stubborn wee man. He would probably be from Northern Ireland if he wasn't from... And yet God's mercy pursues him and puts him in a wheel. Or a great fish, I should say. Sorry, it's easy. Throws him into a great fish. And there Jonah finally comes to himself. God's mercy, he surrenders. He stops running. How many of us this morning are still running from God? And I'm not talking about people who don't believe in God. I'm talking about God's people. How many of us are throwing things in his face, trying to light the low, but to stop his justice, his love coming after us? How many of us are trying to hide from him? How many of us are perhaps feeling like we're in the well of a great fish, but still we won't cry out to him? He comes after us relentlessly. He pursues and pursues and pursues with that amazing love. We try and hide. We have all been there, brothers and sisters, have we not? Perhaps it's the time when you first came to the Lord. Perhaps in your life, for years you've been wondering. You knew there was a God. You knew he was probably real, but you ran from him. Oh, how he chases after us. Oh, how he will. What's that song? Love that wilt not let me go. He did it with me for many years. Oh, I was good at throwing things to lighten the load. I was good at doing this and saying that. And then one day he took me to a place that I could not run away from. He took me to a hill outside Jerusalem amidst a darkening sky. As the sky grew dark, my attention wasn't drawn to the crowds. It was drawn to three crosses on a hill. Two crosses were at the other side. One on the left, some guy was crying out and malefacting, and the one on the right was doing the same. There was that middle cross that held a wondrous attraction, a strange, compelling attraction for me. And on that cross was one they called Jesus, one who was mocked as the king of the Jews, whose back was like a plowed field whose divine heart was struggling under a load of my guilt, my shame. And as I tried to run from that scene, his eyes found me. Just like they'd found the thief on the left who, after crying out, said, Lord, receive me into paradise. And that thief found out that the man in the middle cross said, yes, you can come. 
And Jesus said to me, Daniel, look me in the face. It's not judgment that meets you. It's full forgiveness for all who trust. And I'm sure, brothers and sisters, as each one of you that similar story, if you're in Christ, you have received that forgiveness. You have stopped running. Remember that day when Jesus saved you. Wasn't it great? Please say yes. That love for the first time. I love, I mean, Charles, I wish I had a gift like this. You know, I, I just don't. But Charles Wesley, the day, two or three days after he got saved, we know the hymn, And Can It Be? It actually has 25 verses. If you sung the whole thing, you would start at the beginning of the service and you would just keep going. It's got 25 verses. But he sat down and wrote it as a testimony of his forgiveness. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Brothers and sisters, the reason I relate this before we look at Jonah is because do not make the mistake of Jonah. Do not receive God's mercy for yourself and close it up in your heart and don't share it with others. God's mercy isn't designed to work that way. It's like living water that flows into us from the sheer goodness of God received by faith and repentance that transforms us. But if we keep it within, it goes stale, it grows stagnant. It's meant to flow out. Jonah ran from the God. He had forgot the mercy God had shown him. He had forgot the goodness God had given him. He had forgot the love which was his and the love which he should have shown others. But God didn't give up on him, and so we end up on this beach. And as we said last week from the commentators, Jonah exited the wheel in a very ignominious way. He did. He was vomited up onto dry land. But he's been given a second chance. He's been given a second chance. Perhaps you're here this morning wondering, does God, can God use me again? Can God use me again? And you know the answer is yes, but you refuse to believe it. Look at Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. The Hebrew there actually is a funny word. It says that city, which means a lot to God. Isn't that interesting? See how God's mercy shapes this whole narrative, flows through this whole narrative. I mean, Nineveh, as we looked at when we started this, Nineveh, Nineveh is not in Israel's top 10 tourist destinations. <laughs> Nineveh is the place that sends out armies to take over and destroy Israel. In fact, 40 years from now, from this scene, not from now, 40 years from this scene, Nineveh will send an army out to invade Israel. That's an interesting thing. We'll come back to that next week if you're still with me. But Nineveh is a military city. It's a city that does not treat prisoners well. It is a city that is in rebellion against God. When God said, go, cry out to Nineveh in verse 1, chapter 1, for its evil has come up before me. He was not underestimating it. It was a godless, pagan city. It was the most unlikely place for God's mercy to be shown. And yet God in his mercy, God in his goodness, God in his amazing grace says that city is important to me. That city's important to me. I pray the Lord says the same thing about Lincoln. I pray the Lord says the same thing about England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Nigeria. There's all sorts of important cities across this globe. That great city, go and preach the message I give you. And Jonah, as we said earlier on, the first thing we see here, the key to this whole setup is Jonah obeys God. Jonah obeys God. 
Why does obedience matter in the Christian life? Why is obedience important? Because it shows to us that we take God as real. It's a demonstration of faith. When we obey God, it means we believe him and trust him. People ask me where I get my curly hair from. And it gets curlier as the time goes on. And one thing I always say to them is this. My mom, when I was a wee kid, I, you know, I would have been a nightmare. I'd, I'd dread to think if, uh, being a, I am. Um, do you know why you tell a kid not to do something, they do the opposite? That was me times 10. So mom used to say to me, Daniel, don't stick your fingers in electric sockets. It's not good for you. And I thought, but they look so much fun. There's these prongs. Well, what's the, and so I stuck my finger in the electric sockets. And I found out that electric sockets where the curly hair comes from. It's a, very, it's a very cheap way to have a perm. But I didn't believe my mom really did it. If I believed her, I would have listened to her. I would have obeyed her. Obedience in the Christian life actually isn't, isn't for our sake, though it is. Or sorry, it isn't for God's sake. Sorry, it isn't for God's sake. God here orchestrates this whole event to get Jonah to where he wants him to be, but it's for Jonah's sake. Like, Jonah, I've loved you. I've pursued you. I pursued you to the depths of the ocean. I've lifted you up. I've been good to you. I'm asking you now, Jonah, the mercy you've received from me, do you believe that I'm capable of showing that mercy to others? If so, go to Nineveh. Do you practice what you preach? Do you walk the walk? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew and the Greek and the whole ends of the earth? Do you want to go? And by your obedience, you will open an effective door of opportunity for me to pour out a revival upon this heathen city. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we want to see God move, if we want to see God bless this city, if we want to see God bless our families and our lives, the first step to that is obeying what he tells us, is taking God real. What is revival? But taking Christ seriously. And he takes us seriously. That starts in the church. That starts with each and every one of us. Do we believe the God? And that's why I reminded you of your own salvation that day when you saw the light, when you trusted Christ. And you receive that love. Don't you want others to receive it? Don't you want others to know it? Don't you want others to know the joy of the Lord that surpasses all things that's greater than money and wealth and anything this world can offer? Peace with God in this life and in eternity. Hope, security, and the love of God will never let us go. Look at the world around us. It's crying out for that. It looks in all the wrong places. It sticks its fingers in electric sockets. Well, we take him seriously. We want to see God move in Lincoln, in LBC, in England, across this world. Let us take him seriously, and he will take us seriously. And through our obedience, he will open a door of opportunity. This is this, the last known revival in the United Kingdom was up in the islands of Scotland in Harris and Lewis. How many of you have heard of the Hebridean revival? One or two, three or four, five or six. I can still count. That's good. Do you know how it came about? Do you know how it came about? This great revival that transformed the whole Lewis. Do you know how it came about through two old dears? Now, if you've met Scottish ladies, and we've got one or two here at LBC, they're a formidable force. But these two old ladies were reading their Bible, and they said, hang on a minute. What, what's going on here? If we believe in God, if we believe what he says, and we believe in his power to do things, what are we doing? And they started praying. These two old ladies just said they were going to start praying for their area. As they prayed and they prayed, 
there was a man over in Belfast. He wasn't from Belfast, but he, you know, all good things happen in Belfast. And he was over in Belfast. And he was preaching at the Easter convention in Belfast, which is a big deal. His name was Duncan Campbell. And he was scheduled to speak that night. And just before he got up to speak, like, like Jonah, the Lord said to him, Duncan, go to Harrison Lewis. Which in those days, I mean, they're really hard to get to nowadays, never mind those days. It's harder than getting to Gainsborough. No. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. It's hard to get to. Closed his suitcase, got up and went to the islands. People were a bit shocked at the Easter convention. He said, sorry, guys, go find another speaker. He went there and started preaching and revival fell. They all obeyed God. They took him seriously. Jonah here takes God seriously. And you'd like to say, well, Jonah, it's about time. You know, you've just been to the bottom of the ocean with him, but he takes him seriously. He goes to Nineveh. Revival starts when God's people start taking God seriously. We trust him and leave the results up to him. But when we do obey him, it swings open a door of opportunity. What was Ruth all about? Big doors swing on. Small hinges. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep faithful to the Lord. And he will open a door of opportunity that will surprise even us. Obedience starts. So Jonah goes to Nineveh. It's a big city, verse 3. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It was an exceedingly great city. We reckon Nineveh was 1,850 acres square, which is big. It's a big city. There's 120,000 people in it. When it says he traveled three days across it, what it probably means is he spent three days going up and down preaching in it because as loud as Jonah's voice could be, he wasn't going to cover the whole city. He goes into the city. He obeys the Lord. He starts preaching the word of God and his message is simple. It's a message of judgment coming. Jonah said to the city, a day's journey, he cried out, 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. I mean, imagine being in Nineveh when Jonah walks into town. I must be, imagine the ladies around the, it wouldn't be a water fountain, I suppose it would be a well. They're all sitting talking, they're having their morning catch up and this, this guy walks into town and quite frankly, you smell him before you see him because he's been in a fish for three days. Doesn't look the best. You're probably wondering, oh, bless him, that wee man, maybe he needs a wee cup of tea. And he's walking in. And you have no idea, those ladies have no idea that this wee man through the power of God is about to change their lives forever. Walks into town. An unlikely person, an unlikely place, an unlikely town. He's an Israeli. He's one of the people who the Nineveans frequently go to war with. He starts crying out the strange message of judgment. 40 days, we know in the Bible that 40 days is a period God seems to give to his people for testing, for temptation, and for judgment as well. It's in Jeremiah 2 when the Lord calls out against Israel. 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. God's mercy is real, it is deep, and it's compassionate, but it also comes with a cost. God's mercy isn't sentimental. God doesn't wink at sin and in his mercy say, oh, that's fine, everything goes. No, he warns folk that there's a day coming appointed when we will all give account to God. That's why people run from him. God is just. He is good. He made us in the beginning. He creates and sustains us. He gives us life, and yet we rebel against him. We run from him. He pursues us with mercy. He gives us opportunity to come back to him. He throws things in our way to get our attention. He gives Nineveh this message of judgment, but also the opportunity of repentance. God is just, and he is kind. He is righteous and he is good. He is holy and he is love. And here the message comes to the people of Nineveh as it comes to us all that there's one day where we will give account to him. Forty days the city shall be overthrown. 
Jonah obeys. He brings the word of the Lord to the people, message of judgment, and is applied by the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, this is a miracle. Look what happens here. First five comes straight after fourth one. Jonah starts preaching, and the people start repenting. If you're not amazed by that, you've either fallen asleep or, like, this is Nineveh. These people have never really heard about Yahweh. This is the most unlikely place for this to happen. Jonah just preaches this message of judgment that God's wrath is coming upon them. And all of a sudden, these people start crying out for mercy. How amazing is that? Please say yes. They cry out. This unlikely city, this unlikely people, these people who were far away from the God of Israel, far away from anything, who couldn't really frankly care less, God floods them with his grace. Brothers and sisters, we serve a God who could do more than we could think, hope, or imagine according to his power at work within the church. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We pray to a God who could do more than we could think, hope, or imagine. We pray to a God who can revive this city, though we think it's far from him. We know a God who even though our family members, and we love our family, don't even know our family members who for years we've witnessed to and loved just to get further and further and further away, he could do more even there than we could think, hope, or imagine. Keep trusting him and keep praying for them. He opens doors in our obedience because that's the kind of God he is. And he delights to use us too. Have you ever wondered why God uses us? I mean, look at Jonah. Who would use Jonah to go and get a cup of tea, never mind to go and preach a revival mission? Jonah, go and get us a cup of tea. Ah, oh, no, I can't be borrowing away. Oh, thanks, Jonah. Why does God use Jonah? Why does God use us? Why does he use some crazy northern Irishman? There's many reasons. One, because of his mercy. But two, because God wants us to know his mercy, but he also wants us to share his mercy with others. And this is the problem that Jonah has in chapter four. He wasn't just there to be a flash in the pan. He wasn't just there to be a stand-up preacher and pull out the next day. No, God had something even richer planned for him, which Jonah didn't do. God, when he gives us his mercy to share that mercy with others, also builds bonds of fellowship between us and others. He wants not only to save individuals, but he wants to make a body of Christ on earth from every tribe, tongue, and nation that loves and cares for each other. You know this, brothers and sisters, what where sweeter place of friendship can there be when you pray with somebody and you experience the mercy of God together? What deepness of bonds of fellowship for somebody who you've witnessed to for years, the Holy Spirit falls on them, they get saved, they come to Christ, and it's through your witnessing to them. What richness of fellowship that brings, doesn't it? it creates a strong bond. When you... um go to somebody in the hospital room and they're, they're sick and they're ill and they're, they're in a really difficult place and you pray with them and show them the love of God. What bonds of fellowship. That, but see how the Lord, not only through his mercy, saves us and brings us, but he brings a body together that is transforming and shows that mercy out. In fact, did somebody not say the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We in the West are far too individualistic. We in the West are far too, in our wee silos, in our own wee worlds, know the body of Christ is called to love and show mercy to And Jonah was sent to Nineveh to preach the mercy of God that they would receive, but also to build these bonds of fellowship. And that's where some of the revivals have gone wrong in the past. And don't, don't criticize me for saying that. The guys who were in the revival said it too. John Wesley, at the end of his life, looked back over a ministry that was very powerful. 
So did George Whitfield, and they saw that God's mercy had fallen down in great power and great strength, but something had happened, the revival had fizzled out, and just, it didn't work in some cases. I mean, look at the Welsh revival. How powerful revival was that? The, the Welsh revival, you know the story about the miners? When Whitfield was preaching to them? I mean, if you're down in a coal mine, you're going to get dirty, aren't you? Let's face it, you're going to be covered in coal dust. As Whitfield's preaching to about 10,000 miners, the only thing that he could see was the whiteness starting to form there where the tears were wiping away the coal from their eyes. The revival spread overnight. And now, Welsh miners, and maybe it's just the Welsh, I don't know, the Irish would never do this, but the Welsh miners, before they were saved, used to communicate to the ponies in very strong Anglo-Saxon language. And that's all the ponies knew. These guys got saved overnight. And they had to learn a whole new language to teach the ponies because the ponies couldn't understand them anymore. What an unlikely place for God to move. Continue to be surprised by his mercy in your life. A mercy which he has freely given you because he loves you. And he has called you to be his, to know that love, a love which is greater than any love this world can give. An identity which is in Christ, which is stronger than any identity this world can shape or craft for you. A hope hope that will never, ever disappoint. And he has called you into a body of people who too should love you and show that mercy together. We don't always succeed at it. And I know that. I've let folk down, you've let folk down. We've all done it because we are imperfect and we're works in progress like Jonah. But let's never give up striving by the power of God's spirit to create that community all the same. Because Jesus has called us to do it. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? What was it Oscar Wilde said? I love the world. It's just people I've got a problem with. <laughs> and we can sympathize with that, can't we? People are hard work. Life can be hard. Jonah would have been hurt by the Ninevans. Let's face it here, Jonah. I mean, we, we, we're a bit harsh on poor Jonah, but as I said a few weeks back, this would be like somebody, a modern day equivalent would be like somebody going from Ukraine into Moscow to preach the gospel. The Ninevans had hurt his people. They'd stuck knives to their back. They'd been, they'd been hard to him. And Jonah here is given a difficult task. He goes in the mercy of God, yes, and he knows that that mercy gives him power. He's been forgiven much, but still he struggles with forgiveness. It's hard. It is hard. Instead of preaching mercy to them, you want to give them a Glasgow kiss? If you know what a Glasgow kiss is, you're very holy and sanctified and don't worry about it. As the old Scotsman said, if in doubt, in with the heed, in the boot. <laughs> Forgiveness is hard here too. The mistake we make as Christians is when we try to forgive in our own strength and actually we call to forgive others in the strength that the Lord supplies to us. I've shared with you before the story of Cory Ten Boom, but I'll share it again to illustrate this point. Corrie Ten Boom was, as you know, many of you know, she was in the camps during the Second World War. Her sister was killed in the concentration camps as she herself suffered greatly in the camps. But outside of that, some beautiful, beautiful testimonies coming. One of her sayings is, no matter how deep the darkness, God's love is deeper still. And many years ago, Corrie Ten Boom was preaching in a church. She was doing her tour of America to raise the forgiveness of God, and she was preaching on forgiveness. It's always a danger to preach. As she preached on forgiveness, she saw a figure at the back of the church a figure who unsettled her stomach. She didn't recognize him, but she had that clawing, churning fear. Anyway, she preached the sermon of forgiveness. 
At the end of the service, she was standing at the front talking to folk. No folk would come and say thanks for the word, etc., etc. But this figure came closer to her. And she recognized him straight away. It was the commandant of the camp where her sister died. And the guy came up to her and said, Fraulein, you will not want to see me, I know. But God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me. I have repented of the evil I have done. But now I'm asking you for your forgiveness. Put yourself in her shoes. Perhaps somebody has had with relationships. I quite tell him in that moment, as it's a danger. It is a danger for preachers. You have to practice what you preach. Quite tell him in that moment knew that she had to forgive this guy. She knew the Lord had forgiven her, and she knew she was called a difficulty to forgive him. And so she tried to put her hand out to shake his hand, and her arm wouldn't move. It physically wouldn't move. And she's right. Okay, Lord, hang on here. You know, I'm supposed to forgive him. Help me to forgive him. Nothing happened. And then in that moment, she had a revelation. The Lord said to her, you cannot forgive him in your strength, but you can forgive him in mine. Because you're not called to do this yourself. You're called to do it with my grace working through you. Jonah, the mercy you have to show to Nineveh isn't your mercy. It's the mercy of mine working through you. And in that moment, the Lord gave her strength to shake his hand and forgive. Obedience is costly. Obedience to God's word is hard. We are called to take up our cross and to follow him to count the cost. God's grace is rich and free, and yet it demands everything. But in that demanding, he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. As we said a few weeks back, treasure in jars of clay. And so Nineveh is preached to from a prophet with a broken heart and a hard heart and a heart that was still struggling with these issues, but yet obeyed his Lord because he trusted him. And as he did that, the door of opportunity opened, revival poured out on Nineveh. I mean, look at this, look at verse six and beyond. The whole city is an uproar for the best of reasons. There's sackcloth, there's ashes, and that's got nothing to do with cricket. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh. We reckon this isn't actually the king of the whole Nineveh people. It's probably a regional governor. He rose from his throne, tore off his robe, sat in ashes. This is a genuine repentance by the people of Nineveh. They knew to repent. And in repenting, faith is starting to work already. You cannot turn from your sins and turn to God without him starting to work in you. And Fred, if you're here this morning and you feel God pursuing you with his mercy, if you feel that conviction upon you, he's working in your heart already, receive that work and trust him. Trust him. He will bring it to completion. Whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And the people of Nineveh experience this, they have, this is what revival looks like genuinely. Firstly, repentance of the people. A mass repentance in unlikely places, unlikely times, a turning to God, and a prayer. He issues a proclamation. I mean, how great would it be if, if Rishi Sunak got up in the House of Commons and issued a proclamation like this? Oh, Daniel, that's not possible. You're being all realistic. We serve a God who can do more than we could think, hope, or imagine. God who has transformed this country before. I mentioned the Wesleys earlier on. Do you know that secular historians, guys who have no interest in promoting the Christian faith, credit the Wesleyan and Whitfield revival for saving this country from the horrors of the French Revolution? Such was the impact of the gospel upon this land. How many of you heard of, what's he called? Hogarth. Hogarth, the famous painter. And you've seen those paintings of Gin Lane and things like that. I mean, it wasn't exactly, the English heritage wouldn't want these things up as advertisements. England in the 1700s was a wild place. I mean, it was wild. 
Hogarth has pictures of Gin Lane where people are rolling around the streets where people are eating their babies and things like that. It was wild. Easter Sunday in St. Paul's, I've shared this with you, but we're at Easter Sunday in St. Paul's Cathedral. How many people do you think were at church at Easter Sunday in St. Paul's Cathedral in 1748? Come on, you can answer it back. Keep your awake. Hundreds? Nope. Ten. Ten. Janet, you remember. Good job, Janet. Ten. <laughs> oh, was it you? Sorry. Oh, Janet, sorry. <laughs> you take the credit, Janet. All right. Ten people. Ten people. The Whitfields and the Wesleys started preaching. They obeyed God. They took him seriously. God took them seriously. The whole nation was transformed by the power that fell from that. Never, ever put God in a box. Never limit his mercy to by what you think is acceptable standards. God's mercy is outrageous. Like Jesus with that woman who came and wept and wiped his feet with her tears. She had known his mercy. For the people whom the Apostle Paul preached this gospel to, the gospel of Christ's forgiveness, the tax collectors, the sinners, the down and outs in Corinth, the down and outs in Rome, those whom nobody would touch, God touched and saved and transformed. Who knows, verse 9. Who knows what God could do? Why won't we take him seriously? Preach his word, pray it out, and love each other, and love the city of ours. Who knows what God may do through this place? Not for our glory. Who cares about our glory? But for his. Nineveh is turned upside down by the mercy of God, which was deep, impactful, and real. Yes, they would lose it in 30 or 40 years' time when the generation passed, but this generation was transformed by the goodness of God. The obedient prophet. The door swinging open. Verse 9, who knows what God could do? I love that cry of faith, don't you? Remember when Jonathan was in fighting against the Philistines? And there's only a handful of them. There's a whole Philistine army and Jonathan cries out, who knows whether God will save us or not? Let's go. Oh, for faith like that. Unless you're sitting here thinking, well, Daniel, you know, Jonathan was a young man. I've got, you know, I've got the, the sore knees and the joints. Moses was 80 when he led the people out of Egypt. So there's no retirement for the people of God. Methuselah, how old was Methuselah? There you go. There's no cutoff point for you guys either. God can use us. Who knows what God can do when this mercy flows through a people, a people who need to remember to be transformed. That's why we come to church each week to spur each other on to love and good works. That's why we have communion to remind ourselves again of how this started for us through Jesus Christ. And we can never forget that. The cross shapes all that we do and know and love through the power of the resurrection. Who knows what God could do in our midst and through this city? Verse 10, God saw that they had repented. He turned from his, he relented from the disaster he would bring to them and he did not do it. Outrageous mercy opened to people through the obedience of an unlikely prophet in an unlikely place at an unlikely time to the goodness of God. I don't think there's more I could say. So let us pray. Lord, thank you for reminding me of the beauty of your forgiveness and gospel that I am prone to forget through service, through Jonah sometimes running around. And I pray this morning that each one of us too who love you and have known that love would feel it afresh today as a source of delight and eternal comfort. 
that we remember that nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. Alone and naked we came to you for dress. Hopeless we looked to you for grace. Foul we to the fountain flew, Jesus wash us. We did not die because your grace was rich to us. So forgive us if we become like Jonah sometimes and we hoard that up. Open the gates of our hearts to love each other. Those around us, even those who hurt us, Lord, in those situations, I know that's a broad pastoral application of that message today, but we pray for those situations where there is hurt and where there is hardness and where there is unforgiveness we struggle with. May we know your power to help us with us, Lord. Thank you that your grace is constantly available to us and you strive with us and you transform us. So for those in those situations, I would pray your gentle touch today. And for those this morning who, again, are outside this mercy because they've run from you and they're still running even right now, they're throwing things in your face, Lord, excuses, barriers. May you pursue them, O Lord, until your mercy breaks down their hearts and they know the God who loved them and will forgive them if they call out. They turn from their wicked ways and trust in you that mercy is theirs through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we ask all this knowing we cannot do it without your Spirit's help. So, Lord Jesus, come and do your work, we ask, for your name's sake.